0: You can turn in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. If you weren't able to find it the first time, it's between Zephaniah and Zechariah. If you still don't know where that is, uh, just go to the Gospel of Matthew and then go three books back. So Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah, and then Haggai. So last week we looked at Haggai chapter 1. and Specifically we saw that Israel had the wrong priorities. They returned from the Babylonian exile, and their first order of business was to restore, to rebuild the temple that was destroyed when Babylonian, Babylon came in and basically laid ruin to all of Jerusalem. But they neglected this task, and as we saw last week, it was because they were prioritizing their own homes over the temple of God. And so God comes and confronts them, he rebukes them, and he calls them to repentance. And and what's incredible in the story is that verses 12 to 15 is they actually respond in repentance and they begin to get to work. They begin to start to restore, uh, to start to rebuild the temple. And so now we are here in chapter 2, and I would say that chapter 2 is a chapter full of incredible hope incredible hope. So let me pray for us and then we will look at the passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would cause life to reign here this morning. You would breathe life into our own hearts. You would move our numbness to respond rightly to Christ. That we would love him more And, Lord, that we would leave here with a greater confidence in the God who has saved us because of what you have promised and what you are going to do in the near future. We lift this time into your hands, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Christianity has a a long history. If you consider it being connected to the Jewish history, it's much longer. But let's just take, for example, the time of when Christ came. Christianity has a history of over 2,000 years. And in those 2,000 years, there have been um, bad things that have happened in the name of Christianity. There have been tragedies. There have been times where the Church of Christ has lost its focus from the most important things. But there have also been glorious moments in the history of Christianity, there's been incredible moments when you look back on history and you can see what God has done in the world and in society. You think for example just the early church itself how that broke out onto the scene in in this in Jerusalem and then how it spread of course to Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth and How very early on in Jerusalem, we see 3,000 people being added to the church, and then more and more were added day by day. The Lord, by His Spirit, was at work. The new age had come. Or you can, for example, take the the medieval ages, the high middle ages, where, where in many ways Christianity was the main mover for universities starting in the Western world. Most people don't understand this, but it was because of Christianity that education was seen as a value to society. And so universities were started where they could study the things of God. And and science was started primarily because they understood that there were laws in the world that God had established. And there was a creator, and therefore these laws and these things could become known. Or you take the Reformation. Reformation. Though there were many horrific things that happened during the Reformation, there was also in many ways a, a restoration, a reforming of biblical truth. God raised up specific individuals to respond to the corruption that was taking place in the church at the time and to return to our ancient history. Or you can also think of the great evangelical awakenings under George Whitfield and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards, or, or thinking of the, the time where William Wilberforce, who was the, the forefront um, face in regards to putting slavery to an end in the British nation, in Britain. These are all moments where God seemed to have done something really incredible in Christian history, and that, I'm just speaking there, of Western Christian history. There's tons of other moments in history across the world that God has done incredible things. And as Christians, we can look back at those moments and be deeply encouraged and deeply thankful, but there's also another side to it. Sometimes when you read about these moments in history, it can actually cause discouragement. We can look and feel discouraged, and we we can wonder whether God will do such things in our time and in our day. It's hard to read through the book of Acts and go, Lord, why aren't people being added day by day to your church like it was in Acts? We can grow discouraged. We can look at the great awakening and see this this movement of really awakening, revival, where many people were converted to Christ and, and society was actually changed. And we can wonder, Lord, why not in our day? We can grow discouraged. Israel, I think, was experiencing a similar reality here in Haggai chapter 2. They were looking back to their glory days. And they became discouraged in light of their present circumstances so the first thing we see here in verses 1 to 4 of Haggai chapter 2 is a discouraged people. Listen to what Haggai writes. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaddak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of people of the people and say... Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. It's the seventh month... And in the the Jewish calendar, that would have been October. It's the 21st day of the month. It's approximately seven weeks since God first spoke in chapter 1, verse 1. And it's close to a month since the rebuilding of the temple began in verses 12 to 15 of chapter 1. Now this specific time in the Jewish calendar is actually the feast of, Of Tabernacles. You can read about the Feast of Tabernacles in Leviticus 23, verses 33 to 43. Now, this feast was a reminder to Israel of God's deliverance in Egypt, but it was also a season of rejoicing in the harvest. But we know from chapter 1 the harvest hasn't been good because of their sin. God basically brought famine and drought to the land because they were ignoring the things of God. Not only this, but in the seventh month, this was the month that Solomon finished and dedicated the first temple to the Lord, which you can read about in 1 Kings chapter 8. Now this current temple they're working on will take another four years to be completed. And Ezra 6 makes this known. So it's into the midst of this specific context that God begins to speak again through the prophet Haggai, and based upon the questions that are asked, it's assumed, it's understood that the people have grown discouraged. They've become weary of their current situation. As verse 3 says, "'Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now?' Is it not as nothing in your eyes? It's not like the former days. Now, there would have been only a few at this point who would have seen the former glory of the temple before the exile. If the, the, the number that are there, we don't fully know who they would have been, but they would have been very old in their age. But, but all the people knew of the former glory of the temple. They would have been taught about it. And due to the current circumstances, it's understandable that they'd be discouraged at what has happened. The work ahead of them seemed so daunting a task. The glory days of Israel were gone. They lacked the resources. They lacked the people. They had neither the gold nor the silver to make the temple as beautiful as it was in its former former days. Discouragement kicked in. Discouragement, we often know, leads to throwing in the towel. It can lead to indifference. It can lead to a level of hopelessness. Israel was probably tempted to give up at this point. You see, so often, learning from the past can be helpful. But if we become fixated on the past we can often grow discouraged just as Israel grew discouraged because we often compare the present to the past and think the past was so much better than the present when in reality we're probably just not aware of all the evil in the past as well. We tend to look back rather than ahead. You know, if, if you're a, a Christian here who's, who's older in years... I think, for example, my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation, they see what's happening in society now. And, and, and I think even for my generation as well, if, if you know anything of Canadian history and Christianity in Canada, and they see what's happening now, and, and there's a level of, Lord, what, is, what are you doing? What are you doing? Where's our society headed? What are the things that we are abandoning as a nation. and there's a level of discouragement when they they look back to when they were children and they, they see the influence of Christianity upon this nation, and now it's no more, so to speak. You know, I would never say that Canada was ever a Christian nation because I don't believe in such a concept. There's only one Christian nation, and that's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But it would be ignorant to say, that Canada has no Christian influence. You, all you have to do is walk through the parliament buildings in Canada and you will discover scripture passages everywhere in the buildings. Canada, in one sense, was, was built on, in many ways, a Christian worldview. And my dad talks about the days where, you know, Sunday school when he was a kid, and even in the 70s and 60s, that, that people, churches, would send buses to neighborhoods and, and all the kids, whether their parents were Christians or not, would go to Sunday school. And that's why many of them can talk about how they, they know many biblical stories, even if they are not followers of Jesus. There was a time in our society where the Lord's Prayer would be read and, and prayed in schools. That's no more. And And for Christians who have... Who are much older in their, in their walk with the Lord, they, they can look at what has happened and, and grow discouraged. Lord, what are you doing? Why is our society heading the way it is heading? And the problem is they have their eyes fixed the wrong way. They're looking back rather than looking ahead to the promises that God has provided for His people. Israel is discouraged. And in light of their discouragement, God exhorts them. He gives three different exhortations. One, he tells them, be strong. And he says that three times. He says it to Zerubbabel, he says it to Joshua, and then he says it to the people, be strong. And then in verse four, he says, work. And then in verse five, at the end, he says, fear not. So if you were to summarize these three exhortations, it would be this, take courage and get to work. Take courage and get to work. See, despite the circumstances, despite the uphill battle, God's exhorting his people, Israel, to take courage and to accomplish the work that God set before them. But we need to see that these exhortations are rooted in two truths. God gives two truths about himself as a means to empower the Israelites to take courage, to not despair. And this leads to our second and third points this morning. What are these two truths? Well, the first is this, which is our second point. We see a God who is a present God. He is a present God. Take courage, Israel. Be strong, Israel, because I am with you. Look at verse 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. See, God's call to be strong is never to be strong in themselves. It's never to have confidence in themselves. It's never to believe in themselves. There's so many. Preachers and Christians today that will say things to other Christians believe in yourself, be confident in yourself. I've read the Bible several times. There's not a single place in the Bible where Jesus or any of the prophets or the Apostle Paul ever says, Believe in yourself. He says, Believe in me, believe in the Christ. He's the one that you can have confidence in. See, He calls them to be strong. But what's he rooting that in? He's saying, be strong and work because I'm with you. I'm with you. That's what he's rooting this call to be strong in. I am present with you. As he says in verse 5, my spirit remains in your midst. And this truth that he is with them, that his spirit remains in their midst, is according to the covenant, literally in the Hebrew, the covenant or that which he cut. The covenant God made with Israel when he delivered them from Egypt. The essence of that covenant was this. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is a major theme in the scriptures. Whenever an individual or the people are called to a great task, most often this message is always given. Be strong for I am with you, says the Lord. You think of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, Moses has died off. And Joshua has replaced him as the leader of Israel. And what is it that God says to him in Joshua 1 verse 9? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In First Chronicles 28 uh, verse 20 David's life is coming to an end and he speaks to his son son Solomon and this is what he says. Then David said to Solomon his son, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And then you think of Jesus' words at the Great Commission. And though he doesn't say, be strong and courageous, what he does say implies that they need to be. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what will strengthen the hearts of the people. This is what will empower them to press on in the work that has been set before them. The infinite, all-powerful, transcendent God is with them. He will be with them. He will be present in their midst. And know this, church, that he is also with us. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father with the primary purpose of sending the Holy Spirit to be with us, to dwell in the midst of us, but not only that, but also to dwell within us. This is precisely why Jesus can say to the disciples, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the first truth God uses to strengthen them is that he will be with them. But there's also a second truth, which leads to our third point. God promises them a future glory. He promises them a future glory. Look at verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations So that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And there are several things we see here. First, there's a, a universal and cosmic shaking. God is going to shake the heavens and the earth, but also the nations. Not only that, the wealth of the nations will come into the temple and God will fill this current house that they're building with glory. For as he says, the silver and gold belongs to him. Thirdly, he speaks here that the glory of this current temple that they're building will be superior to the former temple. And then fourth, in this place, God is going to give them Peace. In other words, Israel, be strong, work, for a future glory is coming that will be superior to anything in your past. Now, what is it that God is referring to? When is it that God is going to do this? Now, I don't have a ton of time to go into detail this morning on this subject, but what you'll often find is that when God speaks in the Old Testament of future events, there are there are times where there are what I would call um, small temporary fulfillment and then grand climactic fulfillment. So that there's often a more immediate temporary fulfillment to something that God has said that hasn't reached its full culmination, but it's been partially fulfilled. So let me give you an example of this. In in 2 Samuel 7, God speaks to David. He makes a promise to David about his throne and about his kingdom. And he says this in verses 12 to 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the immediate, the temporary, the, the small fulfillment of this promise was Solomon, David's son who built the temple of God. But we know as the scripture unfolds that Solomon doesn't reign forever. He dies. The temporary fulfillment is Solomon, but the grand, the climactic fulfillment of this promise is the coming of Jesus Christ. It is he who will truly establish the throne of David Forever, Why? Because though he dies, he rises from the dead to reign forevermore. He is the one who shall sit upon the throne of David forever and he will reign as king. So we see this temporary fulfillment, but this grand climactic fulfillment that finds its fulfillment in Christ. And I think we can see a similar pattern here in verses 6 through 9. This rebuilt temple did reach a glory and beauty that surpassed the former glory, specifically under the reign of King Herod. But is that what God is ultimately referring to here? The language in these verses speak to something far more grand. A cosmic event. The language of God shaking the heavens, the earth, the nations, and and the wealth of the nations coming into the temple is primarily used in the Old Testament in reference to the great day of the Lord. That is, the day of God's vindication, the day of his judgment, the day of his reign, the day in which he will establish his kingdom forever, and righteousness, justice, peace will reign supreme. You see, God's plan was never for there to be for all eternity a physical, material temple. Jesus in the Gospels already begins to teach and demonstrate that he's the fulfillment of the physical temple. It is he himself that will be the meeting place between God and man, which we looked at last week. In Matthew 12, The Pharisees come to Jesus because they're upset because the disciples of Christ are are walking through the harvest and they're picking grain and they're basically saying, you're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus, of course, says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. But he says something else that is profound in Matthew 12, verse 6, in response to them. It's a simple line, but he says this, I tell you something. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Now, you need to understand, to the Jews, there was nothing greater than the temple. But Jesus is saying something greater than the temple is here. What's he referring to? Well, we know he's referring to himself. He was superior to the temple. For it's through Christ that full access to God is established. As one commentator puts it, in essence, the Old Testament temple finds its fulfillment in the Lord of the temple who is greater than the temple. And that's why the the writer of Hebrews takes verse 6 of Haggai chapter 2 and applies it specifically to the return of Christ where God will shake The heavens and the earth, where Christ will establish his kingdom forever. Hebrews 12, 26 to 28. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He's quoting right out of Haggai 2 when he says that. Yet once more. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made, like the temple in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We don't need a temple to offer God acceptable worship anymore, because Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. He becomes the place in which we worship. The meeting place between God and man. This is why the the story ends in the Bible, or should I say really the, the new beginning, the new creation, we're told that there will be no temple. Why? Because we're told that God and the Lamb will be our temple. Revelation 21, 22 to 26. And I saw, this is John having a vision of this new creation. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, hear this, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Doesn't that sound like Haggai 2? And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. See, this is the ultimate hope that God was giving to Israel. To empower them to be strong in the midst of difficult circumstances. To press on in the work that God had given them. And God's saying the same thing to us. There's thousands of reasons to be discouraged. There's thousands of reasons to despair and to throw in the towel. But God's saying, Don't lose hope. Take courage. I'm with you, declares the Lord, and I'm going to return once and for all, and I'm going to right that which was wrong, and in that day I will pronounce peace over you. As it says here in Haggai 2, I in this place I will give peace. Peace, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Be strong. Take courage. When you feel as though that family member will never come to faith, don't stop praying. When you wonder whether your discipling is truly having an impact, press on, knowing that the Lord is with you when you experience the injustice of this world and you see the evil in our world, hold on to the hope that one day our King will return to make all things new and he will bring peace upon the earth. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be strong. Press on. Do the work of the Lord. So God tells them, he tells this discouraged people to be strong, knowing that he's with them and there's a future glory to come. But in verses 10 to 19, we also see that there is a blessing to come, specifically in regards to the harvest. Look at verses 10 through 19. On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the, year of Darius, the, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said no. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these Does it become unclean? The priest answers and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there was but ten. When one came to the, to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there was but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed Yet in the barn, indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is the second message from the Lord in chapter 2. And it occurs two months after the message that we just looked at in verses 1 through 9. God commands Haggai to ask the priests about something regarding the law. He asks about that in verses 11 through 13. And the point that God's making to Israel is basically that something that's consecrated to God cannot make something else consecrated or holy simply because of contact. So you stick a, a, a consecrated meat In your garb, and if the garb touches another thing, another form of food, that food doesn't become consecrated. It can't become holy. Whereas defilement could be passed on by touching. And in the example, he uses the dead body. And this was based upon the Levitical law. And and God's making the point to Israel that they've become a defiled people and their defilement has spread, whereas their holiness has not. Now we're not told specifically why perhaps it was due to their idolatry which we looked at last week it's most likely that but it's possible it's something else but we're not totally sure but what was the result of Israel's defilement well verses 15 to 17 tell us now then consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord how did you fare in other words before you got to work on the temple, how were things going for you? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. In other words, you didn't get what you worked for. It, you haven't been prospering. You haven't experienced blessing. Why? Verse 17, I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. We saw that last week, right? They experienced the displeasure of the Lord, specifically here in regards to material blessing, that of the harvest. See, God disrupted their worldly endeavors before they got to work on the temple. They didn't receive the harvest they were hoping to receive. God struck their laborious attempts, and even with all of this, we're told they didn't turn to the Lord. But we know from verses 12 to 15 of chapter 1, Israel did finally turn to the Lord. They began to prioritize the things of God. And this is why in verses 18 to 19, God tells them that from this day onward, he's going to bless them. They're going to know God's favor, primarily in regards to the harvest. The land will yield fruit for their provision. Israel was an agricultural people. Their their livelihood depended on the good of the land. And in the covenant God established with Israel, there was a direct connection between Israel's obedience and disobedience and the prosperity of the land. If Israel obeyed, they would experience the full blessing of the Lord. They would experience the full blessing of the land. And if they disobeyed, the land would suffer and they would suffer as a result. This isn't, I want to be clear, isn't prosperity gospel stuff. Prosperity preachers take these kinds of texts and twist them for their own sinful passions. See, God wants to bless you. So if you just give more, then maybe you'll get that BMW you always hoped for. That's not what's going on here. God wasn't promising Israel that if they obeyed, that every Israelite would be rich and wealthy and have whatever they wanted. That's not the point. The point is is that God will care and provide for his people by prospering the land. In other words, he will be faithful in keeping the covenant because they have turned to him and are prioritizing the things of God. The prosperity gospel does not prioritize God. It prioritizes things rather than God. Under the new covenant, God doesn't promise that the land we live in will prosper. God doesn't promise that Canada will prosper simply because we are being faithful as Christians. In fact, there are many places in the world where Christians are being faithful, and nothing of their nation is prospering. But Jesus did say this in Matthew 6:25 to 33. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Neither They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like the one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, which will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek After all these things. In other words, it's sinners who seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek what? First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things that the Gentiles seek after will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom and all these things, your clothing, your your food, those things will be added to you. That is actually what happens in Haggai. They were prioritizing, they were seeking comfort, security, wealth, and because of that they did not experience the blessing of the Lord. And when they sought first the kingdom of God, God then promised to bless them see, Israel's problem was that they weren't prioritizing the things of God. And so God removed their security, he removed their idols, he destroyed the harvest, he did not bless their toil. But when they began to prioritize God in his ways, God promised to bless them, specifically in regards to the harvest. As he says in verses 18 and 19, Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. In other words, all your efforts have come to nothing. But from this day on, I am going to bless you. God will care for his children He will not only meet their spiritual needs, he will meet their physical needs. His people will know his favor. And that's not prosperity gospel. That's just the Bible. So God promises his people that he will be with them. He promises that a glorious future is coming. He promises to bless their labors by prospering the land. And finally, we have one of the most incredible promises In verse 20 to 23, he gives the people of Israel a messianic hope. Look at verses 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am able to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And their horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. And make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In these last verses, God directly addresses Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. And he tells him almost exactly the same thing we saw earlier God's going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. He's going to destroy the strength of the nations. And we know, as we've already seen, that this is imagery of of the final day, the last day, the day of the Lord, the final judgment, the promise that one day all the world's empires will be destroyed and the kingdom of God will reign supreme. But God also makes a promise to Zerubbabel. He says that on that day, he's going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring, for he has chosen him. But what's strange is that after this historical moment, there's almost no mention of Zerubbabel in history. He kind of vanishes from the scene so to speak yet the Lord told him that he was going to be like a signet ring you have to understand the honor of such a thing this is one of the highest honors you could have in the ancient world a king would would give his signet ring to a person in his kingdom to demonstrate his confidence in the person in a sense a king would grant his own authority to someone by giving him his signet ring. And here, God doesn't give him a signet ring. He says, you will be my signet ring. God was, in a sense, giving his own authority to Zerubbabel. But Zerubbabel vanishes. We know so little of what happens. The key to understanding this is to understand who Zerubbabel was. Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiakim, the last king of Judah, before the Babylonian exile. And in Jeremiah 22, verses 24, God says to Jehoiakim, Even if you, Jehoiakim, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still put you off. In other words, God was displeased with Jehoiakim, and what we find is Jehoiakim was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he was sent into the Babylonian captivity with the rest of the Israelites. But now they've returned. Jehoiakim has died, and God is going to take his grandson, Zerubbabel, and restore him as the Lord's signet ring. In other words, what we see here is that God is re-establishing the kingly line of David, by whom God said that the Messiah, the Anointed One, will come and establish David's throne forever. And if you jump over to Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, we're given the genealogy of Jesus, and you might be surprised at whose name is there verse 12 and after the deportation to Babylon Jeconiah that is Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel and then there's a bunch of other names of which are too hard to say and you jump down to verse 16 and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ the messiah Here's the point that God's making to Zerubbabel, but also to all of Israel. Despite your difficulties, despite the Babylonian captivity, despite that nothing is as you hoped it to be, despite all of these things, I have protected and preserved the line of King David, of whom I have said the Messiah, the King, the Savior of the world shall come. Now, if you know anything about ancient history, whenever a king takes out another nation, one of their first things to do is to kill the king of the other nation. Jehoiakim was not killed, he was taken into Babylon. And you can actually read of his account in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, where he was actually invited into the king of Babylon's table. To eat with him. Despite the fact that he was evil, God preserved the line of King David. The promise he made to David was protected. Zerubbabel is proof in this passage that God is a God who keeps his promises. And in the fullness of time, the true signet ring of God came, namely Jesus Christ. One who was truly invested with the authority of God because he was God in the flesh. Christ was not only the fulfillment of the temple, but he's also the fulfillment of the Davidic line. He's the Messiah, the anointed one of God who will rescue his people from their sins and he will establish his kingdom forever. And we know at his first coming, Jesus died for the sins of his people. And that all who repent and believe upon him will find forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. And he will give them peace. But we know also that he's coming again. Not in a lonely manger. But as king of kings and lord of lords. It will be a terrifying day. But also a glorious day. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will establish justice. And he will be the one to bring peace to the nations. Christian, though the day seems bleak, just as the days seem bleak for Israel, God has promised that through Christ the Messiah, all things are going to be made new. We will be in his kingdom and we will rest in his presence. And no longer will we thirst or hunger anymore. No longer will we despair. No longer will we grow discouraged. No longer will we grow weary. No longer will sin be present. God will keep his promises. And so, Christian, fear not. Be strong. Work for the Lord. For a glorious future is coming, and a glorious king shall return, and we will know his blessing, and we will feast with him and know his pleasure forevermore. Be strong, O children of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that brings hope. And that is what we've seen this morning, that we have hope. We have a glorious hope. Christ is going to return and he's going to make all things new. And Lord, as we wait, help us to wait with faithfulness, steadfastness. Help us to be strong. And Lord Jesus, we simply cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your precious name, amen.